Hi there, I'm Dave Anthony, and this is the Garage to Stadiums podcast. On each episode, we tell you the story of how one of our music legends rose from obscurity to fame and play some of the songs that marked that journey. Welcome to today's Garage to Stadium episode featuring the story of Alice Cooper. Our guest today is Reg Harkema, who spent considerable time with Alice and produced a documentary on him. But first, some facts about Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, whose original name was Vince Fernier, was born in 1948 in Detroit, Michigan. Vince, or Alice, is known as the godfather of shock rock, a blend of hard rock and elaborate stage productions. His pioneering elaborate stage show launched in the early 70s featured electric chairs, guillotines, fake blood, and live boa constrictor snakes. He and his band have sold over 50 million albums. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, has appeared in a variety of movies and television shows, and is even an accomplished golfer with an incredibly low handicap of five. To discuss the story of Alice Cooper today is our guest Reg Harkema, an award-winning director of the documentary Super Duper, Alice Cooper. His other music documentary work includes the episode Hail Britpop from the popular Netflix series This Is Pop. Hey, Reg, welcome to Garage to Stadiums. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. People have their perceptions of Alice, the legend, the horror part of his shows, the whole bit. Give us a sense of what he's really like. What did you think going in and what did you really think when you came out? Um, I started doing a bit of a deep dive into the stuff and it was just kind of like, whoa, this shit is as good as like, you know, those those early 70s albums are as good as uh, uh, um, the uh you know, Stones albums of that time. So I really got into it in, in with a messianic fervor. Like, you know, why is this this guy as an artist, like, you know, not not recognized as as much as uh, uh, he, he, he should be. But the entirety of the time that I was with him, it was just like, you know, he was on. He was kind of, he was Vince, but he was Alice. He was like being interviewed. So he was some level of Alice. And that was, you know, erudite, funny, just, easygoing guy you know the only time i think i ever actually met alice the the person like the vince guy was like you know some 15 minute conversation that we had after the premiere of hot docs and you know we're at a party afterwards and i just ended up sitting beside him and it was like oh the cameras aren't on and uh he can just you know be himself and he started asking me questions about me you know (laughs) which was a little off-putting for a second, you know, but it was just like a nice 15 minutes of meeting uh, Alice the guy. That's interesting. The Take us back, because you mentioned Vince. Tell us about the early life of Alice. Where did he grow up? Tell us about his family life and, uh, you know, what ultimately uprooted the family from where they, they started out. Well, he was born in Detroit, and uh, uh, um, his father was a, uh, a, a pastor of like some kind of Mormon offshoot. And uh, they moved out of Detroit because Alice had this asthma problem, and his doctors recommended that uh, uh, he be in like uh, a warmer climate. So that's why they ended up going to Arizona. And uh, um, the kind of principal thing that happened in his life was that he, uh, at the, as a child, was that he uh, got uh, um, appendicitis, but he didn't tell his parents. And so for a week, he just let this appendicitis fester in his, his gut until his appendix exploded. 
Uh, um, and then it was like, oh my God, this is serious. And he was like literally in the hospital and like the doctors were like, he, you know, he's got like a day to live. And uh, his dad brought in, not, not into the hospital, it brought together the whole congregation and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And the next day, Alice was like fine sitting up in the hospital bed and uh, uh, reading an Archie comic, right? So the God thing is kept with Alice his entire life. But I totally understand how, you know, having a miracle, becoming a rock star, you'd still believe in God. Yeah. And your documentary features several people who played a role in Alice's life, including Dennis Dunaway, a childhood friend of Vince's from Phoenix, who later forms a high school band with Vince. Ultimately, he actually becomes the bassist for the Alice Cooper band. But before that, as teenage friends, Dennis and Vince share a deep interest in art. And you show Alice to be a pretty good artist. But tell us about their love of a certain type of art and how that infused their future direction with music and stage shows. Well, these guys were in art school in a high school in Phoenix, right? And I mean, if you can like put yourself in the mindset of like, you know, three major network television and no internet, right? Like, I mean, what are you doing for like, you know, interest and visual stimulation? And suddenly like, you know, a teacher is handing you these books with like crazy pictures from like Rene Magritte and George Brock and uh, Salvador Dali uh, uh, mostly, uh, um, you know, if you're like a, a disaffected bored teenagers as like any teenager you, uh, it could be and in, in, in the mid 60s, like uh, um, you would probably gravitate towards that. So they kept this kind of like aesthetic and interest in like dadaist art and surrealism uh, um, as an aesthetic going forward. But then they married it with uh, the Beatles because, you know, they're in high school in like 63 in America. Right. Then 64. Boom. The Beatles come along and Beatlemania like covers America. So eventually they, you know, pick up guitars and, you know, Dennis's case, a bass and uh, uh, Vince became a singer. But, you know, as they evolved, they started bringing in more of the uh, uh, um, artistic aesthetic. They had like coffins on stage and, and like, you know, spider webs obviously. And that, that was like, you know, early stages towards uh, uh, moving into a kind of a theatrical presentation. I mean, you know, tell us how they settled on the rather bizarre name of Alice Cooper. Yeah. The, 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 the uh, Al, Alice Cooper uh, um, name is, is, you know, it's, it's fraught in a lot of misinformation, you know, uh, um, the, the mythological story is that they pulled out a Ouija board and formed the name. Uh, uh, Alice Cooper, I mean, you know, Neil Smith, the drummer stands by that. And so it's, it was the most visually interesting explanation of the name. So <laughs> the story of how the Alice Cooper band came to their look and genre has an interesting twist. While they can't seem to crack the market in LA with their music, the guys in Alice Cooper bought all those glittery clothes, you know, 10 cents a pound or something at the local thrift store. Alice says they look like full-size Barbie dolls. And as you said, the performances start to shock the audiences. You know, Alice will joke today, like, yeah, we weren't that good. So we needed something, something else. We weren't that good as players. And we didn't have the song. So we needed something else uh, uh, to attract them. So finally, Frank Zappa came down to see them. And uh, they did a show that was like so horrific that three quarters of the audience just basically ran screaming to the doors. And Frank Zappa was like, whoa, anyone cause that reaction, uh, uh, um, you know, I want to put on uh, my label because he'd gotten this like kind of like boutique label 
the, uh, uh, um, that uh, was, was, was funded by uh, uh, his, his own label. Right, let's play a tune off that. We're gonna play uh, a song called Living. Listening to that album sounds like if the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Cub Band, and Jefferson Airplane co-parented a child, it would be this album. It's very psychedelic. Any number of like uh, uh, late '60s uh, sort of psych bands, uh, uh, those are the albums. And 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 what's interesting about Living that, that you just played and a bunch of songs on the. Uh, those albums, they do have kind of hooks, right? Like you're talking about that. They, they, they very were, much were influenced by the, the Beatles in, in finding that kind of uh, earwig ear candy, uh, um, if you will. But, you know, uh, 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 kind of latent in amongst the, these kind of meandering uh, psychedelic jam. So the album doesn't really do much, Reg. And as Alice says, the problem with L.A. is that it attracts all the best bands from every state. And coming from Arizona, they just couldn't crack the big time there. They prepared to retreat and start to tour literally without a home across the U.S. And this leads to the big breakout moment in Toronto, Canada at an outdoor concert featuring John Lennon, The Doors, Chicago, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and others. Tell us what happened there that really put the Alice Cooper band on the map. Alice took a chicken and he threw it into the audience. And uh, the band didn't know the chicken was going to be there. So in the middle of it, uh, uh, when they uh, uh, were, were playing and bringing out like, you know, their spraying smoke and stuff, you know, that Alice was like, fuck, I'm going to throw the chicken out there. And he threw it out into the audience. And unbeknownst to them, they would like tore it up and threw it back. And, you know, the feathers like started like flying all over the place because, you know, the, the, the uh, vacuum thing or whatever that they had used. And uh, it just became like uh, this big thing because, you know, John Lennon showing up at this thing, there was already publicity and now suddenly they're talking. So it's really at that moment in Toronto, I guess, that Alice creates, or at least Zappa realizes too, this is like a shock rock subgenre of music. The glittery clothes, the Barbie clothes from earlier, the crazy onstage antics of chopping a doll with an axe, grabbing any object he can, throws it in the cr- throwing it in the crowd. Um, but it's not all mayhem underneath. They demonstrate a real shrewd business side in exploiting that shock rock positioning, uh, in sharp contrast, as you said, to the hippie peace loving bands of the sixties. And, and from that point, there's another strong business decision. The, the decision to hire Bob Ezrin, tell us what this did for this band. Eventually, he just like runs them through their paces. And he's the one, it's Bob Ezrin who's the one who's like, okay, this riff is cool. This piece of melody is cool. This long extendo jam fucking sucks, you know?
Yeah, Bob Ezrin, you know, that was his early gig with Alice, and he went on to do Pink Floyd, U2, Deep Purple, Peter Gabriel. I mean, just the list is endless of what Kiss. he went on. Kiss. Best Kiss uh, album. Jay-Z. You know, Alice really was one of his first ones, but man, did he go on to become the industry standard at some levels. Oh, yeah. No, Alice was his first, but, you know, getting in the ground at like 19... You know, with a band that, you know, like Bob Ezrin had like a hit single under his, as a producer under his belt by the time he was 20. Right. And that's followed by another School's Out becomes a massive hit, even bigger than I'm 18. As Vince says, we attract the fans without a home, the freaks and the outsiders. But this next song becomes massive. Holy shit, school's out. What kid doesn't want to get out of school? <laughs> you know, what kid does, you know, we all remember that, like, you know, June, school's over and we got the summer sort of feeling. And like, you know, screw teenage angst, you know, school's out is like, you know, a direct line right into the brain of every uh, teenager in America at that time. How would you describe an Alice show from that era? Dennis Dunaway and, and, and Vince Bernier kind of, working their Dali sort of surrealist art background going, okay, what can we do to step it up? So out comes like the hangman's uh, uh, gallows, you know, and they they hang uh, uh, Alice Cooper. You know, original copies of that album actually came with a poster of Alice uh, hanging. You know, imagine that in like 1971, you're a kid and you've got like a guy, like a long hair hippie hanging from a noose on on the wall. It must have scared the <laughs> hell out of me. And uh, uh, um, they continue that through schools out. They come up with the guillotine where uh, they end up like actually executing Alice with a guillotine on stage. And, and you know, the result of all that is, is like a, an incredible show and uh, uh, um, incredible publicity because no one was kind of doing it. You could argue that the violence was merely a reflection of the violence that had emerged in the late 60s with, you know, assassinations, televised war. Cops beating on protesters. And for me, while working on the show, I also found it really interesting that although no one was actually doing it, they were kind of picking from imagery that was out there. You know, they would do a song called Dead Babies where Alice is like chopping baby dolls on stage and like holding these uh, uh, baby heads up. And, you know, it was kind of like this is just within a, a, a year or so of Life magazine showing like dead babies in the um, at the My Lai massacre, you know, yeah. like color spreads of that and so on. Yeah, the so Vietnam War. Uh... Yeah, and you got to remember, like the Manson murders and taking the bloom off of like you know hippie culture. They kind of like their imagery and their attitude. Like you know, I mean, Alice to this day will use the line, "We put a stake in the heart of the love generation." Right? He's very proud of that. But you know, that's what the hell they were doing. You know, yeah. they were like. We're bringing in all this imagery that uh, was in the zeitgeist. With the fame comes the requisite limos, private jets, nonstop partying. Uh, Vince, he's still Vince at this point, discusses the inner battle in your doc. I think you guys do a great job in kind of highlighting the inner battle he has with the onstage persona of Alice. How would you characterize this Vince versus Alice battle? Well, um... 
from from like the the late sixties, Alice, I guess, you know, had tried acid, but he what he didn't like was the feeling of a like a loss of control. So while the other guys were like taking acid, Alice like just settled into being like a you know, casual alcoholic. Right. And like, you know, he he would just have a beer can in his hand constantly, you know, just sipping, just sipping, we'll sip here, we'll sip there, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock, you know, maybe add a little whiskey, just sipping and, you know, interviews and, and they became so big. It was like, you know, limos. Yeah. Two limos. One limo would take the band to the hotel and then Alice would have to go do a, and because everyone started focusing in on that lead guy who was, you know, and I mean, he was Vince, but he was playing the character of Alice Cooper. And, and you know, the distinction between, oh, Alice Cooper is a band and Alice Cooper, the guy, started getting very blurred. So the Billion Dollar Babies comes out in 73. It yields Alice's number one hit, No More Mr. Nice Guy. So at this point, when he goes solo, Vince changes his, legally changes his name to Alice Cooper, begins his solo career, and launches the biggest stage show ever, Welcome to My Nightmare, complete with the beheadings, hangings, chainsaws, fire, basically every horror movie trick in the book. He's so famous now that he's appearing on talk shows, seen on various television specials with legends such as Frank Sinatra, comedians George Burns, Jack Benny. I mean, he even appears on Hollywood squares and game shows, but the madness and the mayhem continue. And as he says near his doc, he's, he's drunk most days while trying to play the role of Alice Cooper. He says, who wants to talk to Vince Fernier when Alice is the star? Um, tell us really what happens next. The alcohol, you know, gets to an apex that is just, I mean, the end is near here. What happens next is, is a really interesting tidbit. Yeah. Well, he, um, you know, Welcome to My Nightmare was like even beyond what the Alice Cooper group had done, like just massive, right? So uh, um, he he uh, uh, cannot get off the road. In fact, he, he gets off the road when uh, uh, he starts having like liver issues during Alice Cooper Goes to Hell. But once once those are cleared up back out on the road, he just like slides downhill. In, in 1977, but this was like round about the time that uh, Elvis died, and we can we can never overstate the impact of like Elvis and the Beatles on on all of these rock stars at the time. And uh, uh, so Alice, I think, looked at that Alice Cooper and saw you know the same bloated rock star that uh, uh, Elvis had become. And uh, finally, Shep and him and uh, Alice's wife, Cheryl, who we'd met on the Welcome to My Nightmare tour. Yeah, she was a dancer on the the stage show and they had romantic scenes together. They end up marrying. So she sort of says, "Okay, enough's enough here. Yeah. So he he uh, um, goes into uh, um, what was had been used as like an insane asylum in the 19th century and still existed in upper state. Uh, uh, New York. This is like pre-Betty Ford clinic, right? So, yeah. you know, they're sending him into like, you know, a modernized insane asylum to to dry out. 
So then he cleaned up. Uh, um, he's still hanging out with uh, Bernie Taupin. Bernie Taupin is uh, uh, legendary as uh, the the lyricist and co-writer of uh, uh, with Elton John. Like you know any great Elton John song of, of, of the day that you've heard, Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics for. So it was a weird collaboration from for, uh, from the inside. Was it Texas or was it Canada? Drinking whiskey in the morning light. And I work the stage all night long. At first we laughed about it. My long hair drunken friends. So they were like, hey, let's make an album together. Um, but well, uh, Bernie Taupin, uh, you know, to help Alice, uh, you know, keep, keep his edge, but not fall back into alcoholism, introduced him to cocaine. Alice never wanted to talk about it because in his uh, bizarre Christian <laughs> aesthetic or ethic, uh, uh, you know, booze, becoming an alcoholic and booze was okay as long as you recovered from it. But drugs, no way. I don't want anyone to know I did drugs. Part of that was starting to freebase cocaine. You can't even remember doing because he was like so fucking strung out on freebase cocaine. Then we moved to the late 70s. Punk is emerging. As you said, we're in 77 when he's kind of drying out. Uh, the punks are emerging. Uh, in your documentary, John Lydon, lead singer of the Sex Pistol, pays tribute to him. What was it that the punks saw? What did they like about Alice? Well, because he was, you know, he was like, they put the stake, you know, like Alice said, he put the stake in the heart of the love generation, you yeah. know. But yeah, they saw, they saw like, you know, someone who, uh, in Alice, who was like, uh, 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 had been a reaction to the, to the uh, uh, broken promise of the, the 60s and the hippie era, and they identified with that. Right. Um, so... Let's fast forward a bit. We go into the 80s now. We've got the glam metal era starting. We've got Twisted Sister. We've got uh, Motley Crue, hair bands, etc. They got the Barbie-like colors. They got the sparkles. A lot of sort of Alice uh, elements to their shows. And that sort of leads to a bit of a rebirth or a rediscovery of Alice uh, in kind of a historic live concert. Tell us a little bit about that glam metal era. It's not no coincidence that all these guys like fucking curled out their hair and like D Snyder putting all this makeup on, you know, he, he reached like the, the rock bottom in like 1983. Cheryl had left with their daughter. He was like strung out free basin cocaine. And he had like this kind of, of epiphany and went back to his parents and then just like dried out for like three years. And yeah, his parents literally take him home and nurse him back to health. And the videos you show of him in this era with his hair up, he looks like Catherine Hepburn strung out on something. Like, he looks really bad. Well, well you know, Cheryl Cooper, uh, um, you know, Alice was a preacher's kid, right? As I, you know, it was, was pointed yeah. out before. So was Cheryl Cooper. And then through all the ups and downs that Alice uh, uh, went through. She was his rock. She was his rock and saying, I'm leaving you with my daughter. 
that was a thing that she needed to do to kick his ass. And, uh, uh, you know, she's always maintained her faith. And uh, uh, um, she was the one that was able to buttress uh, Alice's faith, you know, so he's, you know, become a Christian to this day. And so, you know, he went and dried out. Alice went and dried out for three years. And in the meantime, MTV happened and like, you know, Quiet Riot and Motley Crue and all this. And Alice, you know, I mean, he was on the track team, right? Like he's an athlete. He's a competitor. He's kind of like, wait a second. These guys are doing my fucking shtick, you know? So, you know, he kicked booze. He kicked cocaine. He's like, I want to get back into the ring. And Shep said, okay, let's go for it. Found this like, you know, Rambo guitarist, Kane Roberts. Stuck Alice in a studio with them. And Alice and Lord Kane came up with a bunch of songs and, uh, yeah. Uh, an album. I can't remember the name of that album, but uh, uh, the the big test was the uh, Halloween show back in yeah. Detroit. In 19... well, I was like 1986 or so, I think. In that yeah, era. 1986, October 31st, 1986. Alice hadn't been on stage in three years. Had never been on stage. Yeah, this is a live M- MTV show. This is a big deal. Oh yeah, Shep was like, "We're going for it." And Halloween, the- Halloween, Alice Cooper live MTV, like. What else could be a fit for Alice? That's awesome. And uh, Alice was like, you know, he fucking walked in a circle for an hour backstage, you know, and then he came out and suddenly was like, I'm just Alice. And he just fucking went for it in the crowd who had not seen. They were all young enough that they hadn't seen that early 70s Alice Cooper show. Fucking went bonkers for it. And he was back, baby. He ended up actually having a number one song Poison it was like a number one hit so Reg Alice Cooper seems to have had significant influence on a few different genres of music where do you think he sits in musical history. Let me just sum it up by telling you about a little visit I had to Alice's man cave. He's got like pictures of him with Frank Sinatra, and, you know, Jack Benny, Groucho Marx, you know, because he's just at root, like a fan himself, right? So I'm like looking through all those pictures. Then they come along and there's a picture of Lady Gaga. And I'm kind of like, well, is Alice a fan of Lady Gaga? And no, it's a picture of Lady Gaga, and she has written, Alice, I stole everything from you. Thank you, God. And, you know, you listen to Lady Gaga's music. I mean, you know, it's not much of a musical influence. I mean, Alice does a killer version of Born This Way, but, you know, nonetheless. But it tells you that basically theatrical presentations of popular music would not have happened without Alice Cooper. You know, like fucking Taylor Swift probably doesn't even know who the fuck Alice Cooper is. She should be bowing down at Alice. Beyonce probably doesn't know who Alice Cooper is. She'd be bowing down at Alice. Lady Gaga knows Alice and she pays tribute. Yeah, yeah. You can draw a straight line from Alice to uh, probably, I mean, Ezrin went on to produce a band called Kiss, and uh, the makeup, the fire-filled show, the glittery clothes. Um, 
the androgyny of Ziggy Stardust and Bowie and Mark Bolan of T-Rex? Yeah, Bowie, Bowie, when, when the, 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 they released Killer, right? Like November 71. Uh, uh, they played in uh, uh, London and Bowie sent his backup band to go see them because the backup band didn't want to wear women's clothes. Right. And Bowie was like, it fucking works. Go see this. Yeah. And Alice talks about that, how he uh, encouraged Bowie to go for it. So yeah, he did influence Bowie. The yeah. um and of course the influence the punks with the screw you attitudes, uh the glam metal of the eighties. I mean, Alice literally has his fingerprints on so many genres, like you said. It, it's yeah, remarkable. that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, like the Taylor Swifts and the Beyonce. It's like, you know, they're not lumped into glam metal and punk and all that, but it doesn't matter. It's like theatrics. Totally. Reg, we're going to your three picks, the deep cuts, Alice tunes that people may not have heard. And uh, let's hear them now. Which ones would you pick? Well, the first one that I, I, I you know, was a, a bit overlooked as a deep cut because it's probably followed on the album by like the greatest Alice Cooper song of all time, Ballad of Dyke, Dwight Fry. Wait a minute. The best Alice Cooper song of all time, the Ballad of Dwight Fry. Let's play that. In the day. that is a song called Second Coming. Next one I picked uh, uh, was a song called I Never Cry. It makes me shiver to the bone, it shakes me big. Just a heartache that got caught in my eye. And you know, I never cry. I never cry. You know, Alice did have like this kind of sentimental heart. I'm not sure the rest of the band had. And when he was unleashed from the band, uh, um, and, uh, he was allowed to explore that some more. And I never cry. And it's like my kind of one of my go to karaoke songs. <laughs> I've got visions of Reg Harkham in a karaoke bar with the makeup running from his eyes singing it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love singing that song. Yeah, the third pick was "Pass the Gun Around" because again, it's it's like a piece of art. If you, it's like a Dylan-esque piece of art where, you know, he's really speaking to the human condition, you know, and what is going on with his life. Wake up watching cartoons, the television's on. There's a couple of party balloons, and all my money's gone. 
Like takes you into the heart, soul, mind, you know, Vincent Fertier and what he's dealing with at that yeah. time. Like as a day with Alice, you go visit Alice, would you wake up in the morning and chop some dull parts and then you go golf in the afternoon? Is that what it's like? You know, Alice the man conquers his demons in 1986 because after that, you know, Alice has got put out some like great music and so on, but there's not been any sort of like tension in his life because yeah, he literally gets up and he has breakfast and he goes and he plays 18 holes and he comes home and he watches some uh, daytime TV and he has lunch and then he checks his watch and, uh, you know, goes into his room and starts like doing some karate moves to some martial arts movies to get ready for the show. And then like limos over to whatever show that he has to do and uh, uh, um, gets on stage at a casino by seven o'clock and then, uh, you know, off stage by like eight to be or nine and goes back home and falls asleep watching a horror movie and starts the whole thing again. Right. Like can't really, sh there's not a lot of like, you know, internal demons he's battling anymore that make for great substance of a show. Right. Yeah. Alice Cooper tucked in in bed by 11 <laughs> with a cup of hot milk. Six months of the year he tours now at the age of 75. It's incredible. Reg. Harkema, thank you so much for today. You were, uh, that was really, really fun. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me on Garage to Stadiums. Right on. Some closing notes on Alice Cooper. He's recorded songs for several horror movies like Friday the 13th and Wes Craven's Shocker. He's even appeared as himself in the comedy Wayne's World and actually played Freddy Krueger's wicked stepfather in Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. If you want to hear the official Garage to Stadium's Alice Cooper playlist, check out the episode page at our website, garagetostadiums.com. In the show notes from that episode, you'll see a link to the playlist, including our guest Reg Harkema's three deep cuts from Alice Cooper's extensive catalog. We've also included some bonus footage of Alice in various stages of his career. For example, we have included a rare early clip of Alice performing his huge hit, I'm 18, on local Detroit television, as well as clips from his elaborate mid-70s Welcome to My Nightmare concert tour where he achieved superstar status. As we noted, Alice was a huge celebrity in the 1970s, and we've included clips of him on The Muppet Show and The Johnny Carson Show. It's hilarious to think of a guy who beheaded mannequins dancing with Muppets, but it is there. As we mentioned, Alice is a very good golfer, so if you want to see him swinging the clubs, we have video of him at a celebrity golf tournament, beheading dolls for show and putting for dough, as it were. Actually, Alice cites diving into golf as key to his recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Special thanks to our guest, Reg Harkema, director of the documentary Super Duper Alice Cooper, and our producers, Reese Waters and Sarah McClellan. You've been listening to Garage to Stadiums, another Blast Furnace Labs production. I'm Dave Anthony. Join us again for another Garage to Stadium story. This has been a Podstarter production. production.